Well, I think it's only right that before we begin a message on prayer, that we actually take some time to pray. So I'd ask that you please bow your heads and pray with me this morning. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this morning, this opportunity to be gathered together as your family. We look forward to what you have to teach us. So Father, we ask that we would have open hearts and minds to receive the message that you have for us this morning. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we've been going throughout this series. We're doing this series on prayer. And yet if you stop and think about it, prayer is kind of an odd thing. I mean, it it begins, it's based on this premise that basically the God who created the universe actually wants to hear from us. I mean, stop and think about that for a second. When you look at the vast cosmos and you consider the world that we live in and who we are, we are just a speck. And yet, prayer proceeds on the very assumption that the God who made all of that actually cares what you and I think. That the God who made all of that desires to be in conversation with us. To not only hear what we have to say, but that he also wants to speak to us, to guide us, to walk with us through our daily life. In fact, the actress and comedian Lily Tomlin put it this way. She said, when you talk to God, it's called prayer, but when God talks to you, it's called crazy. And I think if we were just to go on the assumption that God is indeed the creator of all things, it it seems a little odd that he would even care. And yet, one of the things that Jesus tells us, and that we looked at last week, is this idea that our prayers begin by calling God Father. Because while God is indeed the creator of all things, he is also our Father in heaven. He delights in hearing what we have to say. He delights in meeting with us and talking with us and hearing the desires that are on our hearts and minds and and showing us the way in which we should go. The prayer is essential for cultivating that relationship with our Father. It's a gift that he's given to us. So on that premise, we want to kind of continue and look at the rest of this prayer and, and, and see what the priorities of Jesus are in prayer and how that would shape our prayer life and our understanding of our relationship with God. Because after calling us to, to begin our prayers with our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, Jesus says that the very next thing we should pray is this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, at the very outset of the prayer, after establishing who we're talking to, Jesus says that the number one priority in prayer is that God's kingdom come and that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, in our modern democratic society, we hear this word kingdom and we have to wonder, what does that mean? What does it really mean that we're praying for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? And one beautiful illustration of what the kingdom of God is all about is it comes from a work of art that was created in Mozambique. It's a work of art called the Tree of Life. And it was created by an artist in the wake of a, a terrible civil war that ripped that country apart. The countless people lost their lives in this civil war. And when the civil war was finally brought to an end and there was peace in the country, he, he sculpted this beautiful statue called the Tree of Life. It's now in a museum in Britain. And it, but if you take a closer look at the sculpture, what you see is that it's actually constructed from cast-off weaponry. That the entire tree is built up of old, rusted AK-47s and machetes and bullet casings. The exteriors of bombs. 
You see, when this artist made this beautiful work of art, he said that, yes, our world is broken, but I believe in a better world. He called it the tree of life. It's actually a reference to something that we find in Scripture. This idea that one day God is going to come into our broken world and make something beautiful. That the weapons that we use in wars or to defend our countries will no longer be necessary, but instead be used to construct something gorgeous, something that reflects peace. That even the good things that we think are necessary for healing our broken world, things like medicine or the ways in which we try to cure the brokenness in our hearts would no longer be necessary, that one day his kingdom would come and not even medicine and the things that we need to, to kind of cure the ache in our own souls and in our own emotional lives will be needed because all things will be made new. You see, the artist believed that there is another world, that there's a better kingdom something which can be brought forth in our world, something which is beautiful, which puts an end to all the brokenness. And the question is, how do we get there? How does that kingdom come into our world? And so to do a thought experiment, uh, I want us to really think about that for a moment. What would it take? What would it take for our worlds to be a place that reflects this kind of radical healing and beauty and blessing? You know, a lot of people have been talking about politics these days, and those conversations are usually pretty nasty. Uh, they're happening on uh, social media. We see it happening on the news. We argue about it over lunch and over dinner. There's just a lot of division around politics. So I'm going to give you kind of a dream scenario for just a moment. I want you to imagine that on Tuesday, after the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, that actually everybody has been removed from political office. We get a blank slate that we can actually start a brand new election cycle on Tuesday. And that when we do, we actually choose the right people. Like for everything, local government, state government, national government, we choose the right people. People who actually care about our country, people who want to serve, who see them serving in that office as a gift and as a sacrifice and not as a job that they're entitled to. That we get the right people with integrity in those positions. But more than that, we not only have the right people, we actually have them in the right spot. They're in the right position. They're occupying the correct office in which they can best use their talents and their skills and expertise for the blessing of our country. And now that we've got the right people in the right positions, they actually pass the right laws. They pass perfect laws, everything from mundane things like zoning issues to our tax code. That they pass all the right laws and, and we can all as a society sit back and uh, breathe a collective sigh of relief and say, yes, this is good. This is the way it was supposed to be. Imagine that dream scenario. You've got that in your head. Now let me ask you this question. If we had the right people in the right positions passing the right laws, would that suddenly mean that every marriage is a picture of marital fidelity? Would it mean that every home is a place of safety where parents always show patience with their children? Would it suddenly mean that we would all become more generous, give, giving freely of what we have to others without worrying about what's mine and what's theirs and whether or not they can pay me back? Would we actually look forward to Mondays? We like go into the office and you're like, yes, I'm excited to be here. I love these people. And you love your coworkers, but not just that, you love your bosses. Like, I love my boss. And the, the work that you're doing, you're just like, this is a value. I love doing these cover sheets on TPS reports. Rock. Can you imagine that? Like that, that suddenly if we had the right people in the right 
places, passing the right laws, that, that all that would suddenly change? If we had the right people in the right positions, passing the right laws, would that suddenly mean that violence and war come to an end? That hurricanes and tsunamis are no more? That crushing debt is eradicated once and for all? That disease is gone. We no longer have need for things like chemotherapy and medicine. If we get the right people in the right places passing the right laws, do we think that will happen? I think the answer, quite honestly, is, is no. We know that that wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen that way. And the answer for us as Christians is not then to just kind of bury our heads in the sand and, and go off into some monastery and pray that everything gets better. That's not what Jesus is advocating for here. But when he says, your kingdom come, your will be done, what he's highlighting is the fact that our world is so broken, it takes something totally new to actually bring about transformation. That it's not going to simply come when we vote for it. And while voting is good, while exercising our responsibilities well is one of the ways in which we can serve others, what Jesus says is that the brokenness in our world is so deep, so penetrating, it goes to the very heart of what it means to be human, and that that takes something radically new. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene and he begins preaching, everywhere he goes and everything he does, he says things like, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now we hear those words, kingdom of heaven is a hammer. It's like, but, but where is it? You know, we, we hear him say, the kingdom of heaven has come near you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we look around and we say, okay, where? And I think it's because we have a faulty understanding of what a kingdom is. That when we think of a kingdom, we think of castles and countries, of boundaries and of borders. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. For him, kingdom is not a place. Kingdom is not a castle. Because there are two ways of talking about a kingdom. And in the New Testament, we see both of them. There's this idea of a kingdom used as a noun. But kingdom can also be used as a verb. And that often when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he's not talking about a specific place. He's talking about a particular person who does a particular kind of activity. He's saying when the kingdom comes near you, what he's talking about is the things that a king does. He's talking about the ways in which a kingdom comes when a king is actually reigning on his throne, when his will and his laws are being obeyed, when his works are going out and being effective as he rules and reigns and decrees all things. That's what he's talking about. And so when he says the kingdom has come near you, what he's talking about is he's talking about his own activity in the world. Which is why he's always tying this idea of the kingdom of God to everything that he does. That when he goes out and he preaches and he teaches, he's talking about what it means to live within the kingdom of God. That when we see him healing people of their diseases and their illnesses, he's showing the kind of work that this king does. That he brings healing to the brokenness of our world. That when he stands up for the oppressed and the outcast and protects them at great cost to himself, he's saying this is how a king rules and reigns. That he protects the weakest and the least of these. And ultimately, he shows us what it costs to become a part of that kingdom by going and dying for us on a cross, showing us that the king is willing to lay down his life for his subjects. That he's willing to lay down his life for those who've rebelled against him. 
in order to forgive them and to draw them into the kingdom that he is bringing into the world. And ultimately, he ties the kingdom to the fact that he rose again from the dead to show us that when his kingdom comes in fullness, it is a kingdom that goes so deep down into our brokenness that it transforms death itself. That death itself is killed. And all that is left is life and life eternal. He's saying, that's what I mean when I talk about the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come near you because everywhere Jesus goes and everything he does is a sprinkling of the kingdom. is providing a foretaste in this world of the kingdom to come, of giving us an image of what is coming next. And it's not just something that Jesus himself does. It's something that he continues to do through his people in the world. That every time we see a person being drawn close to the love of God, every time a person is set free from the prison of guilt and of shame, every time we see somebody trapped in poverty and injustice who is then raised up, Every time the the poor person is not regarded with suspicion, but is treated with dignity and with respect. Every time we gather here and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that we are God's forgiven children. Every time someone is baptized and is brought into the family, all of these are expressions and foretastes of the kingdom of God. Small, yes. Seemingly mundane, yes but little glimmers of the kingdom to come, little ways in which the king is breaking into this world and bringing something totally new. When Jesus announces the kingdom of God, he's basically saying there's a new administration in town. And what my kingdom will address is those issues that are the deepest of issues, the ultimate issues, the things that truly matter, the things that have to be dealt with. And he does so in profound and beautiful ways, ways which take the old things of this world and turns them into something beautiful. Which takes brokenness and makes it something awe-inspiring. Jesus says these foretastes are just just things to, to help us see the kingdom that he will ultimately bring when he comes again. I love how scripture ends, honestly. There's this beautiful chapter in Revelation 21 where, where one of Jesus' followers, the Apostle John, gets, a, gets, gets to see what that ultimate kingdom is going to look like. This is what he writes. He says, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's what Jesus means when he talks about the kingdom of God. These foretastes of the kingdom to come. This day when he will enter in and all things will be made new. It's a beautiful picture. 
But there's still a question. What does that have to do with prayer? That's what we're supposed to be talking about. So that kingdom, that, that image, that understanding of the kingdom, what does that have to do with prayer? Why does Jesus set that as the priority in his prayers? Well, I think the answer is because is that we often don't approach prayer with that kind of kingdom mindset. I think oftentimes, we, we, I, know, I know that I, there are many times when I approach prayer kind of the same way I do my smartphone. Here's what I mean. My favorite app is the Amazon app. Because through the Amazon app, I wield godlike power. And here's what I mean. The moment I desire something, I can have it. The moment I want something desperately, I pull out my smartphone, I call up that Amazon app, and it can be delivered to my doorstep. I love the Amazon app because it's the only place that I can go to where I can get fuzzy wool slippers and a CO2 bike pump and my favorite Harry Potter book, and they will all be delivered to my doorstep in the same box. Two-day free shipping if you have Prime. And I think oftentimes... We approach prayer this way. It's like, it's like we want to have a genie in our pocket, right? We approach prayer this way. We begin our prayers, Our Father who art in heaven, holy be your name. I have a whole list of stuff that I need. We start with our wants and our desires. We list them off and we hope that they arrive with two-day free shipping. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying mature prayer. Prayer that shows the depth of your spiritual maturity doesn't start with you. It doesn't start with me. It doesn't start with our wants and our desires. Mature prayer is expressed when we desire first and foremost God's will and God's plan. When we're willing to lay our kingdoms and our crowns at his feet and say, it's your kingdom coming that I desire most. It's your will being done in earth as as it is in heaven that I want more than these other things. Saying that is the mark of Christian maturity when it comes to prayer. That that must be first and foremost. And when you think about it, that radically reshapes our approach to the world and how we conceive of our daily living. There are really two ways that I think we can make this prayer our own. First way is that when we begin our days is to ask this. We say, Lord, make your kingdom known through me. Make your kingdom known through me. What that means is when I start my day, I consider every aspect of my life and I say, Lord, may your kingdom come and not my own. And that does change how I approach my day. It changes how I approach my work. If I'm asking God, Lord, make your kingdom known through me, I'm now asking the question, is this the right work that I should be doing? And while I'm there, am I doing work in a way that brings glory to God and actually brings mercy and healing and justice and peace to other people? Make your kingdom known through me in my workplace, O Lord. Or it means that I consider my finances and I ask, Lord, make your kingdom uh, known through me and how I spend my money, what I use my debit and my credit card on today. Lord, make your kingdom known in what I post on social media, in who I vote for, in how I conduct myself, not only with the people that I love, but with the people that I have a hard time 
interacting with. Lord, make your kingdom known through me. You see, what this does is it unseats our priorities in our hearts, and it asks, Lord, I need you to do that work in my heart and in my life. Make your kingdom known through what I do today. But then the second thing to pray is this, Lord, make your kingdom known to those around me. Make your kingdom known to those around me because there are oftentimes when we go throughout our days not considering the struggles of those around us. We fail to see that there are people in our lives every single day who are being crushed by this broken world. And when we pray this prayer, when we make this prayer our own, we suddenly interact with them in a whole new way. That we, we see the person who's spewing hate and frustration on the train. We see them with the eyes of God that realizes that that anger is simply a mask for some deep pain and hurt underneath. And so we pray, Lord, make your kingdom known. That when we encounter that, that neighbor or that friend or that loved one who's lost someone and we see the hurt and the pain in their lives and they're wondering where God is, we say, Lord, make your kingdom known. That when we encounter that person who's scrolling through Instagram and feels like they're unloved because of how they look or that they don't compare, we would pray, Lord, make your kingdom known. That when we encounter that coworker who we know is starving herself in order to look beautiful by our society's standards, we can pray, Lord, make your kingdom known. That when we see children without homes and without families being sold into slavery, we can say, Lord, make your kingdom known. And when we encounter our co-workers and our friends who seem to have no purpose in life and no understanding of their value and their dignity, we can say, Lord, make your kingdom known. It's a cry of the heart that sees people with the eyes of God and asks that God would make his kingdom known for them, that they would know his love, his forgiveness, his peace, his healing, his justice, and his wholeness. Lord, make your kingdom known through me. Lord, make your kingdom known to those around me. That's what it means to make this prayer our own. And these are not just empty words. Because God's kingdom is not just words. God's kingdom comes in power. And when we pray that prayer, God does indeed transform our hearts and does something that by worldly standards would seem impossible. It's a scary prayer to pray, honestly. To pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life? It's terrifying because what if I don't like his priorities? What if he has a different agenda for the day than I do? What if he wants me to enter into relationship with people that I don't particularly like or that I don't particularly understand? What if God sends me to places that I don't want to go? It can be a scary prayer until we remember who it is that asks us to pray it. That it's Jesus himself who asks us to pray it. And until we remember who it's addressed to, our Father in heaven. And suddenly it becomes a little less scary and a little bit more beautiful. Because the reality is, is when we pray, your kingdom come and your will be done, stuff happens in our lives. God does the impossible. I remember when this became really clear to me, and it was when I was uh, called to serve at the University of Illinois at Chicago in campus ministry. See, I'd been serving with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and I had only made a two-year commitment. 
And that two-year commitment was at my alma mater in Champaign-Urbana, doing international student ministry. And when that two-year commitment was up, it was nice, but I was kind of ready to be done. Because you don't make a lot of money in, uh, in student ministry. You actually have to raise your own salary, and that was very, very, very difficult to do. And so I was kind of like, yay, I did my two-year commitment, great, learned some stuff, I'm ready to be finished. And then people from InterVarsity said, well, we know you're moving up to, to, to the Chicago area. Would you consider serving at the University of Illinois at Chicago? And I was like, I don't think so. I'm not really interested in that. Like, well, you should visit. You know, why don't you visit? And I said, okay, fine, I'll visit. That's, that's only fair. Have you guys ever walked around the University of Illinois Chicago? This is what it looks like. It's pretty much gray concrete and steel. It was built during the Civil Rights period, which is also the same time as the Cold War. And the architecture shows it. That all the windows at the University of Chicago buildings are University of Illinois at Chicago buildings are this wide. Do you know why? Because you can't throw a chair through them. They actually built the campus this way. They built it actually on a dividing line between a black community and the white community at the heart of the city. They wanted the university there to actually exist as a barrier, keeping poor blacks from moving into the heart of Chicago. So it was built to perpetuate division. And it's ugly as all get out. It actually looks like a prison. And I remember visiting there, and I was walking around with the, the person who was in charge of all the kind of Chicago schools, you know, this Christian ministry at all the Chicago schools. And we're walking around this campus, and I'm walking, watching students. They go into class, they leave class, and they run off campus. And those who do stick around kind of huddle in these little cliques, and they don't talk to anybody. And furthermore, the administration of the school was very standoffish to outside groups wanting to come in, even groups that were saying, hey, we want to help kind of build community here at this campus. They didn't really want to have anything to do with that. You see, this outer facade of concrete and steel was a metaphor for the very posture of the people who were there. That those who came onto that campus, students and teachers and administrators, had concrete and steel over their hearts and minds. And they were not about to let anybody come in. And I had inner varsity asking me, do you want to go there? No, I don't want to go there. Are you insane? Who can start a ministry at a campus like this? I remember even asking him, so how many kids, you know, how many, I came from a campus ministry that had like 450 kids in it, 450 students. So how many students do you have at the, at the chapter at USC? Yeah, we have 12. No, I'm not going there. You want me to keep fundraising and living in poverty to come here and do the impossible? Forget it. I went back down to Champaign-Urbana. I went into my prayer time. I said, our father who art in heaven, I already have a job offer from this other organization. Please bless it. And that was my prayer. Until God said, no. It's dangerous when you pray. He said, no, I want you to go to UIC. And I said, send somebody else. He said, no, I'm going to send you. And I said, no, you really want somebody else. He's like, I have plans. I want you to be a part of them. Not really, not interested. Thanks for offering. Like it was an offer. Two weeks every time I came into prayer. Lord, bless my plans. No. Go to UIC. Lord, bless these plans. No, go to UIC. And I remember finally at the end of two weeks, that was my reaction too. <laughs> Every time that happens. Ah! Every time I'd go to prayer, he said, go to UIC until finally at the end of two weeks, I said, God, I'm taking this job whether you like it or not. And he said, fine, you can take that job, but I'm not going to use you there. Make up your mind. 
And I said, fine, I'll go. And so I went. And I served for four years at UIC before being called to be a pastor. And while I served at UIC, I saw something beautiful happen. I saw hard hearts covered over in concrete and steel facades soften. I saw students who wouldn't normally associate with one another worshiping God together every Wednesday night. Students of different racial and cultural, ethnic and socioeconomic backgrounds. I saw them gather together in small group communities to study God's word. I saw them go out onto their campus and into the city of Chicago to serve. I saw students who didn't believe in God and who thought being a Christian was a joke come to faith for the very first time and continue to walk with the Lord. People like Frank and Opal and Gino and Christy. I saw God's kingdom coming. I saw him sprinkle this concrete and steel edifice with glimmers of the kingdom to come. I saw healing and beauty brought forth in a place that I was ready to write off. Were those four years hard? Yes. Were they painful and difficult? You bet. Was it worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's dangerous to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. But amazing things happen when you do. Because God takes what's broken and he makes it beautiful. See, that's how we get to here. That's how we see the tree of life. It's how we see God's kingdom come. It's not primarily by voting for it, although you should vote. Exercise your responsibility well. But ultimately, God's kingdom comes when God's people pray, when God's people ask, when they say, Lord, transform our hearts that we would be ambassadors of your kingdom in a broken world and see the new thing that you desire to do take root. That's how the kingdom comes. It's when we make these words our own. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. I want to close this message by praying, by praying that God's kingdom would come. And so I want to invite you to stand with me now as we pray together.